Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're talking to Dr. Suma Ikeuchi about her new book, Jesus Loves Japan, Return Migration and Global Pentecostalism in a Brazilian Diaspora, published by the Stanford University Press in 2019. Dr. Ikeuchi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I'm really happy to be here and be part of your podcast show. Thank you. Um, I wonder if we can begin the interview by having you um, saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in East Asian studies, particularly um, in the Brazilian diaspora in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am an anthropologist by training, meaning I mostly use ethnographic fieldwork to uh, study uh, the contemporary Japanese society and uh, diverse ethnic and religious groups uh, who reside in Japan today. Um, but although I'm an anthropologist by training, my work also intersects with uh, religious studies, uh, migration studies, um, and ethnic studies, um, and so on and so forth. Um, and currently, I am an assistant professor uh, in the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultural Studies at the University of California, uh, Santa Barbara. Um, so although I am based in the U.S. right now, um, I am actually from Japan originally. I've been uh, in this country for over a decade now. And um, as someone who grew up among the, you know, as part of the ethnic majority or in Japanese, what we call wajin uh, in Japan, um, these various encounters that I had as um, I was raised in Japan um, kind of uh, stimulate uh, my scholarship to this day. For example, I grew up in the Osaka uh region uh, in the greater region of Kansai in Japan, uh, which has the largest concentration of uh, Korean diaspora from the colonial uh, time. 
So I had I had some uh, high school um, peers, high school friends who were um, ethnically Korean, but they were born and raised in Japan. They are called uh, Zainichi Korean in Japan. And then um, before I came to the States, I actually did my bachelor's degree uh, at a Japanese university, um, at a university called Hokkaido University. And there um, I majored in anthropology because I was really interested in the Ainu people um, on the northern island uh, of Japan called Hokkaido. And when I lived there as an undergraduate student, I actually met um, some of them. So um, so those experiences kind of um, kind of sensitized me to this issue of ethnic, uh, racial, or uh, religious uh, and cultural diversity in Japan. And uh, that's why when it when the time came for me to choose a topic for uh, my first book and my first project, I wanted to do something about Japan that is not just for the ethnic Japanese or Wajin. So that's how I came to this topic of the uh, Brazilian or Japanese Brazilian uh, diaspora in contemporary Japan, because I wanted my work to contribute to the larger conversation about um, diversity or growing diversity in contemporary Japan. So yeah, that's um, that's it. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and your book is actually based on some really impressive fieldwork you did in Aichi, Japan, right between 2013 and 2014. And um, to get to you know the sites and the people that you study, uh, you actually worked in some of the factories with the Brazilian return migrants and even lived in the same danchi or the same kind of apartment or public housing complexes with them. Um, so what inspired you to do this project specifically after studying um, about or having interest in the Ainu population in Hokkaido? Um, and why did you choose to approach your project on the Brazilian diaspora in Japan in such a way? Mm-hmm. So I chose uh, the Brazilian migrant population um, because um, they were among the newer uh minority groups in Japan. And at the time when I um, chose this topic, they were uh, still rapidly growing. So to me, um, I felt that um, it was important to um, learn more about them because um, contrary to the dominant uh, perception in Japan, that is that, you know, um, the Japanese society is very homogeneous. Uh, these migrant minority populations rapidly growing in Japan and at the time, the, Jap- uh, the Brazilian uh, communities were kind of the face of this new emerging uh, migrant minorities. So that's why I really wanted to know, know more about uh, these Brazilian uh, migrants of Japanese descent living in Japan today. And as for um, why I, you know, um, carried out the project with the uh, um, you know, with the methodological approach that you just mentioned, like I worked in a, a factory. Uh, actually, I worked at two different factories um, for five months in total. Um, as you said, I also lived in a danji or a semi-subsidized housing complex. Uh, in many cases, for you know families in need uh, that you can find in Japan. And um, I also went to these uh, migrant churches that you can find 
in the regions of which regions of Japan where you find lots of、uh, Brazilian migrants. So the reason is quite simple because.、Um, In anthropology, again, that's、uh, you know、uh, where in the that's the discipline in which I received my doctoral training.、Uh, it is considered、uh, very important to go out there and live with the people, and ideally immerse yourself in the day-to-day lives, kind of mundane lives of the people you want to learn more about. So that's what I tried to do the best I could. And、um, in the ethnographic methodology,、um, it is also recommended that uh, you uh, immerse yourself into as many life domains as possible. Because if you only,、um, you know,、uh, focus on, for example, the work life of the people you wanna you wanna know about, then you might miss important things、uh, about their home life or about their religious life,、uh, so on and so forth. So that's why I wanted to、uh, bring in as many life domains as possible. So that's why、uh, the housing complex to me represented the, you know,、uh, their kind of residence, their home life.、Uh, the factory、uh, to me represented、uh, these migrants'、uh, work life, and then lastly, the church、uh, represented their religious.、Uh, Life. So these three things combined together, I hoped、uh, would constitute a sound,、uh, you know, solid methodological foundation for the project. Yeah, thank you. And it's really impressive in the book. You also attended their、uh, kind of weekend, so leisurely activities too, right? So that's another kind of side of of their lives, right? That you really paid attention to. Yeah, yeah. Those things kind of those things kind of、um, bring up.、Um, Those things、um, come up organically when you live with a group of people over an extended amount of time. You know, they of course start inviting you to you know birthday parties or、uh, you know、um, eat out at restaurants and so on and so forth.、Um, so yeah, that was also an important part of the research.、Um, but you know, it was kind of unplanned.、Uh, it was you know it happened kind of、um, naturally. Yeah, it's it's really beautifully put in the book too. Um, so part one of your book,、uh, it's called Beginnings, reminds us actually at the outset that discussions about migration、uh, needs to be historicized first, right? So in the chapter、uh, entitled Japanese Blood, Brazilian Birth, and Transnational God,、um, you argue that quote to this day anthropology often fails to historicize the objects of study, which leads to the conflation of political historical processes with psychocultural differences. Unquote. So briefly, what is the history of the Brazilian diaspora in relation to Japan, and how does Pentecostalism fit into the narrative?、Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, thank you so much for、um, you know kind of noticing that part because I feel very strongly about the need to include at least you know some of the historical background of the、uh, you know the things or people you want to study. And again, you know, coming out of anthropology,、um, I、um, kind of noticed later on in my training that、um, your disciplinary training sometimes、um, 
failure in that, you know, it, it sensitizes you to um, certain uh, perspectives, but not necessarily to others. So, um, so I actually admire uh, people like you who work with archives and who know that the cultures or frameworks that are common today actually have very specific historical trajectories if you are willing to, you know, kind of turn around and look back into the past. Um, but, you know, on that note, so the history of uh, Brazilians or, you know, Brazilian diaspora uh, between Japan and Brazil. So uh, the very quick version of that history is that in 1908, so at the very beginning of the 20th century, when Japan was uh, modernizing quickly, uh, the population explosion um, within the, you know, uh, the modern Japanese nation uh, was so much that the political leaders um, deemed it necessary to quote unquote export some of the surplus population. So that's when this um, immigration initiatives became um, kind of um, national uh, priorities um, at the time. Um, however, um, you know this is early 20th century, so North America, specifically the U.S. Uh, was experiencing some anti-Asian um, sentiments and also, also uh, immigration policies. So when the U.S. kind of shut down, uh, you know, um, shut its doors to uh, Japanese immigration, then the outflow of Japanese immigrants uh, was kind of redirected to uh, South America, specifically uh, Brazil and Peru, uh, that still welcomed uh, Japanese immigrants. So um, the Japanese immigration to Latin America uh, started in the early 20th centuries and continued uh, during the post-war period until the early 1970s, until Japan became economically uh, prosperous again. Um, so that's the first wave. Then the reverse migration um, starts to, um, uh, you know, kind of gain uh gain force starting in the 1990s when the Japanese government introduced a new type of visa called um, long-term resident visa, which is available to foreign nationals of Japanese descent up to the third generation. So that's a little complicated, but, you know, uh, simply put, you need at least one of your parents or one of your grandparents to be of um, Japanese uh ancestry uh, for you to qualify for this visa. So given that Brazil was experiencing some uh, economic um, turmoil at the time in the 1990s, many um, Brazilians of Japanese ancestry started migrating, quote unquote, back to Japan, their ethnic ancestral homeland, uh, by uh, obtaining this ancestry-based visa. So this reverse movement quickly turned them into the third largest uh, foreign uh, minority group in Japan after the Chinese and the Korean. And then now the number, uh, the, the number of Brazilians in Japan came down a little bit. And right now, I think they are the fifth largest. Uh, but still, um, this uh, reverse migration happened very rapidly. And the presence of Brazilians, uh, Japanese Brazilians in Japan grew so rapidly um, that you know, surprised many um, ethnic Japanese, um, the Japanese majority in Japan. So, as I said, from the perspective of many um, Japanese Brazilians, this was a, you know, one kind of return to their ancestral homeland, return to the country um, 
that they heard a lot about from their parents or grandparents who emigrated from Japan. But once they arrived, um, these so-called return migrants noticed that just because they are of Japanese ancestry does not mean that they are immediately accepted by the Japanese majority who live there today. So this, of course, led to a great sense of disillusionment and uh, disappointment, and in some cases, even alienation uh, on the part of many return migrants from Brazil. And um, in this context, um, of course, you know, um, it's a little bit more complex than this, but in this context, um, the migrant churches for these uh, Brazilian return migrants in many parts of Japan started uh, growing as kind of like a community hub and also as a place that enabled these, um, you know, Latin American uh, migrants to maintain their cultural or religious heritage. Um, and this is where um, Catholicism and also Pentecostal Christianity, uh, which became very common in Latin America over the past five decades, started growing in Japan, um, albeit, you know, on the margins of Japanese society. So that's a quick version that I can give you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for you know laying down the historical kind of background for our conversation later. Um, and introduced in chapter one of the book um, is the idea of morality of mobility, which is the central framework through which you study the return migrants in Japan. This idea is also the, the, the thing that threats right, all of the discussions in the book together. So I guess we will be returning back to it again and again in today's interview. Uh, but can you please maybe give us a brief explanation of what this idea is and how it helps you to understand uh, Pentecostalism in the Brazilian return migrant communities in Japan? Um, sure. Um, so I started thinking about this um, framework, uh, the morality of mobility, when I noticed during my year-long fieldwork in Japan that uh, my informants, uh, many of whom became my acquaintances and in some cases even friends, oftentimes uh, talked about their migration and also talked about their conversion to Pentecostalism as a moral project. Um, and by that, I mean, say, uh, when some of them say that, you know, uh, that, you know, I decided to migrate to Japan um, because, you know, I wanted to, um, you know, save some money for my future. Or they would say I decided to come to Japan um, to, um, you know, make sure that my child has a better future than me. So it sounded like, you know, this movement from Japan, uh, sorry, the movement from Brazil to Japan was not purely a um, physical or a geographical change for them, but it involved a lot of um, ethical and moral uh, implications for them that, you know, uh, this was a forward looking uh you know, morally um, kind of improving uh, their life. Um, so that's when I decided that I shouldn't look at this mobility. I shouldn't look at this movement called transnational migration, um, not solely in physical terms, but I also had to analyze it in terms of psychological and uh, moral weight added to it. 
um, having said that, uh, this better future that they dream of when they arrive, or actually this, um, you know, reconnection with their Japanese ancestral past that some of them uh, dreamt of prior to arriving to Japan, often does not materialize uh, because this beautiful nostalgic past uh, uh, of, uh, you know, that they had the sorry so this beautiful nostalgic past that they heard from uh, their japanese parents or grandparents once these descendants arrive uh, they don't see that beautiful old japan anymore they working you know uh, factories um, also this better future that they dreamt of uh, when they arrived in japan is also hard to get because they are precarious um you know manual laborers so this um, moral project of improving their lives for the future um, is really hard to realize. And that's when this, um, you know, uh, element of conversion to Pentecostalism comes in because uh, many of my informants in Japan then asked that, you know, but then um, I found God and I can still move on. I can still make myself mobile, um, not in terms of my migration project, but in terms of my spiritual, religious, uh, Christian project. So that's when I thought that I have to really put uh, two things together. One is this forward-looking temporality of their migration project. And the other is another kind of future-oriented but also very, um, you know, renewalist, present-focused project of conversion to Pentecostal Christianity. So to summarize by morality of mobility, I mean the fundamental um, fundamental uh, working together of their uh, migrant mobility and religious sensibility and how things that happen in their uh, migratory movements um, interact and uh, kind of fuse with the things that happen in their uh, spiritual um, projects. Yes, um, the idea of morality of mobility is is really interesting too, because you're also looking at mobility, um, not just in terms of space, but also in terms of time, right? as we will see uh, later when we talk about um, different chapters in the book. Um, so part two of the book, um, title Suspended uh, deals with suspended time and space for the return migrants in Japan, most of whom are uh, quote unquote putting aside living while working as precarious, non skilled laborers. Um, it's interesting also that, you know, when you handed out questionnaires to them, uh, many of them actually crossed out live and circled work. Right when you ask them about their status in Japan, so it's really interesting. So why are they putting aside living, and why don't they consider themselves to be living in Japan, especially when they arrived in Japan on the Japanese descent visa, right, a visa that allows them to return to the homeland of their Japanese ancestors? Yeah, yeah. Um, so to answer that question, I think um, I, I want to clarify um, on the kinds of temporality uh, that are involved here. So, of course, um, you know, there are the past, the present and the future. Roughly, those are the three temporalities that these migrants deal with, just like many of us. Um, and what I found out is that in all of these uh, modes of time, whether it is the past, present, or the future, 
um, these, you know, Japanese Brazilian migrants who predominantly work in uh, factories in Japan, uh, many of them came to uh, many of them come to feel that they cannot experience any of these times in any, you know, uh, experientially significant way. So what I mean by that is that so first there is the past, and the past is very important to many of these Japanese Brazilian return migrants because, as you said, the visa they get to get into Japan is on the condition that they have uh, past ties to the Japanese nation, right? Um, They qualify to live in Japan and work in Japan. Uh, This is a privilege that that is not accorded to other uh, foreign groups who do not have the quote-unquote Japanese blood. Um, So they enter Japan um, expecting to... Um, you know, find this path because their visa is predicated um, on, you know, this perception that they come out of the past um, of the Japanese nation. But once they arrive, of course, they do not find this, uh, you know, beautiful, nostalgic image of Japan because Japan has, of course, modernized and changed a lot since their ancestors left for Latin America. So those return migrants who arrive are expecting some version of this sweet past, um, do not really find it. So now um, there's the future because yes, they come to Japan um, because of their ancestral ties, but at the same time, they are very pragmatic. Um, they know that uh, Japan offers higher wage standard compared to Brazil, and they come uh, with a very practical plan of, you know, working a certain number of years and uh, saving a certain amount of money so that they can send their offspring to good universities in Brazil or so that they can buy good homes in Brazil. So. The second, um, you know, uh, temporality that they focus on is the future because they migrate back to Japan to reach this better future for themselves or for their families and offspring. But again, um, their temporal plan is disrupted once they arrive because um, they notice that it is not as easy as they think to uh, materialize realize this better future because uh, factory labor is very intensive. It's actually very hard. And, you know, this financial uh, path to the better future um, is actually more precarious than they thought. So the future is also uncertain. So now the only, um, you know, temporality that is left to them because the other two have been disrupted is the present. Like they want to enjoy the present. But this, again, they find is almost impossible because factory labor is all consuming. And one thing, uh, you know, migrant laborers say over and over again is that they are treated like uh, they are treated like robots in Japanese factories because it's very mechanical. It is very repetitive. Um, It is manual. They feel like they become more inhuman, um, you know the longer they work in this very grinding uh, factory environment in which they feel like 
they are not given the time or space to really savor their experiences in the present. Um, so many of them then also come to feel that they cannot really live the present. They cannot really savor and feel the present because all they can think of as long as they are, you know, uh, at work is that they just want to get out of there. They actually want now to pass because now is unbearable. So since, you know, the past, the future, the present, all of these things are very hard to access or enjoy for the return migrants, what they often say as a result is that um, they don't feel like they're living because they don't have any temporal space to really um, savor life. So that's what I call the temporal suffocation in the book. In terms of time, in terms of temporality, they feel suffocated. They don't feel like they are breathing. They don't feel like they are living. Um, so all of these temporal uh, experiences that were caused and shaped by physical movements from Brazil um, then uh, make many of them to say that I don't live in Japan. I'm just working here. I don't feel like I'm living here. Um, so that's what they call putting aside living. To them, uh, living is something that must wait until they return to Brazil because Japan so far has not provided with them the you know um, space to really live. Thank you. And another kind of um, connected, I guess, um, sentiment that you captured amongst um, these return migrants is the feeling of being, quote, neither here nor there, uh, both in terms of blood, uh, citizenship, and temporality. So here you introduce um, the affective term in Portuguese that they used, afastamento, to capture the sense of isolation and alienation. Can you tell us more about this idea of afastamento? Right, yeah. Um, so neither here nor there in Portuguese is nem la, nem ka. And that's the phrase that I heard repeatedly from many of my informants. And they say that, you know, uh, they say that they feel like they are in between. They feel like they are betwixt and between, as some anthropologists uh, put it, um, in many ways. Um First, they feel like their ethnic or racial identity is in between when they return. They feel like their um, their belonging or their citizenship is in between. Uh, they feel like their culture is in between. So um, this phrase, neither here nor there, nem la nem ka, has, uh, you know, um, multiple layered meaning to them. So just uh, starting with the, you know, this ethnic or racial ambivalence or in-betweenness they feel, when they return migrate from Brazil to Japan, uh, their ethnic identity or their ethnic image uh, goes through a dramatic change. Because in Brazil, and this is somewhat similar to the status of East Asians in North America. In Brazil, um, Japanese Brazilians are oftentimes perceived as a model minority. Uh, they enjoy these positive um, images such as, oh, you know, Japanese Brazilians are hardworking, Japanese Brazilians are smart, Japanese Brazilians are, you know, technologically savvy, so on and so forth. So in Brazil, many of these um, descendants of Japanese immigrants feel that they enjoy a certain kind of ethnic aura, um, ethnic prestige. 
But when they come back to Japan, and this is their ancestral homeland, their ethnic status um, encounters a dramatic downgrade, as they put it. Because in Japan, because they were born and raised in Latin America, which um, is a kind of a third world to the eye of many Japanese, um, they are now con- uh, they are now perceived as backward Latinos in the context of Japan, in the context of their ancestral um, homeland. So they kind of um, they change from these hardworking um, modern Asia minority in Brazil to backward uh, deviant uh, Latino minority in Japan. So, you know, this is one kind of in-betweenness that many migrants uh, feel on a daily basis once they migrate to Japan. Um, And just one more example, um, you know, another kind of in-betweenness that many uh, people talk about is about culture. Um, So, of course, this in-betweenness is not something new because even back in Brazil, um, they felt like they were between, you know, this um, majority uh, Brazilian culture. And, you know, many of them felt like they had this minority Japanese culture at home. So that's, um, you know, one kind of in between it. But when they come to Japan, they feel like this uh, sense of ambiguity intensifies because now they're in Japan and uh, their offspring, the little ones, who were brought to Japan very li- um, when they were very little, or even, you know, there are many who were born in Japan after the start of the return migration. These kids, um, some of them speak Japanese as their first language, and many of them go to Japanese schools and um, start um, embodying um, some Japanese habits and mannerism. So. Now in Japan, uh, they again feel like there is a growing cultural or generational conflict within the family as they, you know, um, keep um, working in their migrant life, which is, you know, again, another kind of uh, tension between what they identify as Brazilian culture and Japanese culture. But since this is happening in Japan after return migration, it's on a whole different level. So really... Anywhere they go, they feel like they're in between two cultures, which um, makes many of them to say kind of jokingly that, oh, we we Japanese Brazilians are Ciganos. Uh, Cigano is a Portuguese term for uh, gypsy or nomad. And that's kind of their, you know, um, go to phrase that, oh, we are Ciganos. No matter where we are, we cannot completely belong. So that's another reason why they feel that they are neither here nor there um, in cultural terms as well. And um, afastamento means kind of growing distance or growing alienation uh, between family members. So, um, you know, it's kind of related to what I said uh, just a second, uh, just a second ago about uh, this growing uh, cultural or generational conflicts within uh, family. Um, So some of those cultural or generational or even in even uh, linguistic tensions within family, uh, they call those tensions afastamento because uh, they feel like sometimes these uh, pressures caused by migration um, 
kind of break up families, break up family ties. And um, that's why they uh, talk a lot about afastamento as a major problem for them. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Thank you. Yeah, all these uh, discussions about um, isolation and alienation, as well as the sense of suspended time, uh, really brings us to part three of the book uh, entitled Renewed, which just which actually brings us to the intersection between precarious migrant life, um, suspended in time and space, and conversions to Pentecostalism. So here you challenge the widespread narrative of, uh, quote unquote, coping with poverty in the study of global Christianity to explain conversions. Uh, You point out in the book that this narrative of coping with poverty, um, uh, quote, hints that converts are driven by material deprivation rather than by their own agency, unquote. So based on your fieldwork, how would you explain the Brazilian return migrants conversion to Pentecostalism in Japan? Um, especially um, why they would uh, convert to Pentecostalism after they arrive in Japan. So what drives them to devote so much of their already kind of scarce time to religion? Yeah. um, So when I started writing this book, um, I had to think a lot about that uh, popular theory that you just mentioned, the theory of uh, material deprivation, leading to Pentecostal conversion, which is very popular um, in the study of Pentecostal growth, especially in the context of Latin America, because um, the the highest rate of conversion or the highest um, concentration of Pentecostal converts uh, is often found in the uh, periphery uh, in Brazil and many other uh, Latin American countries. Uh, including, uh, you know, the so-called favelas. So uh, many scholars um, consequently, um, you know, uh, concluded that uh, Pentecostal uh, explosion uh, or Pentecostal growth um, happened because of these people's material need because they live in the social or um, economic uh, periphery. So I thought about that, but as I did my field work, I came to feel that, you know, this material deprivation or coping with poverty model of explanation cannot really account for um, everything that I was witnessing. Uh, for one thing, you know, this material deprivation was definitely not, um, you know, the thing that, you um, 
motivated um, many people to Pentecostalism, there were many other things that were starting to emerge uh, during my fieldwork in Japan. So that's when I came to this idea that um, maybe, you know, um, again, time or uh, temporality um, is where um, something major is happening. And maybe that's where I have to, um, you know, uh, pay more attention to. So, um, you know, earlier I talked about this temporal suffocation or temporal suspension that many return migrants feel in Japan because they came back to Japan for this ancestral past, which they didn't find. They came to Japan for this, um, you know, glorious, um, you know, rosy, better future, which is actually very hard to get. So now there's, you know, the present is left, but since um, their experience of factory labor is very unpleasant, they feel like even the present life is not accessible to them. So it's really like a, you know, tempor- uh, temporal um, prison. Uh, they feel like they're in, in Japan. So what does uh, Pentecostal uh, practice do uh, in regard to this temporal suffocation and temporal prison that many migrants find themselves in? And my answer is, um, in its own way, uh, Pentecostal practices can uh, open up and break through this temporal prison to let these migrants experience the present um, in a renewed way. So what I wanted to add to some dominant explanations about Pentecostal conversion uh, that I find in the current literature is that maybe so. I cannot say that, you know, material reason is completely non-existent, but um, we have to uh, nuance, uh, you know, this kind of framework of thought and also pay attention to these um, embodied temporal experiences and how, um, you know, Pentecostal practices and temp- Pentecostal ideas can make these migrant converts experience time and life in a new way. So I said that um, Pentecostal conversion can uh, let them experience uh, the present in a new way. Uh, because um, to them, at least, you know, um, as far as how they speak about um, their conversion goal, uh, to them, Pentecostalism uh, is a very present-centered, uh, uh, very, you know, a renewalist uh, kind of um, spirituality uh, to many migrant converts, uh, because how uh, conversion is uh, talked about in their church life is that once you convert, um, your life starts anew in that moment. Um, And once you convert, your old self dies, right? This is kind of like a classic renewalist Christian uh, rhetoric. Once you convert, your old self dies and your new self is reborn uh, in this, you know, uh, blood of Jesus and and in this new fellowship with your Christian brothers and sisters. So this conversion narrative, which is um, shared very powerfully among these uh, migrants who, um, you know, convert, um, 
let them experience their life in a new way and let them find another way, not through migration, but through their religious life to access a new way to experience and construct their life um, in Japan. And in doing so, in kind of, you know, embodying and living through this, uh, you know, uh, rebirth narrative of uh, Pentecostal Christianity, uh, they feel like their clock of life um, can start ticking again. So that's um, one um, story that I wanted to share um, in this book about why Pentecostal conversion is happening a lot in Japan among these migrants. Yeah, it's very fascinating. Like they said, uh, like your informant said, right? it's like a breath of fresh air for them. And um, yeah, and another um, thing, right, um, that the Pentecostal communities in Japan provided for these migrants, uh, I guess, to deal with the precarity of um, factory life is the culture of love, which is mentioned in chapter six. Um, so what is this culture of love and, and something that you call a historical affect um, provide for the Brazilian migrant converts in Japan? Um, so... In anthropology, at least, um, there is a very common um, understanding that, you know, this, you know, what we call emotional, what we call affect um, are not natural states that just spontaneously occur um, inside, um, you know, inside yourself, um, but rather these emotions and, and feelings um are deeply cultural and deeply historical. Um, so something as common as love, um, which doesn't sound too strange to, uh, say, English speakers today, um, is a very culturally specific and very historically specific um, emotion. So along that line, I wanted to, um, you know, think about, you know, this love that many of my informants spoke about uh, by placing it within the, you know, um, the history and uh, within the social trajectory of uh, Pentecostal globalization, uh, because Pentecostalism, um, you know, um, many people say it um, has, you know, deep roots in North American renewalist movements, but then um, it uh, moved moved um, across the globe, sort of, because it traveled to Latin America, uh Pentecostalism is also popular in Africa today and, you know, many other um, Asian uh, countries, including India. So Pentecostalism is, uh, you know, very deeply global movement um, today. And this um, idiom of love travels with it um, because this uh, language of love is a very, you know, important um, cultural framework uh, or religious framework for uh, these people. So I just wanted to think about love, which um, they think is, um, you know, very Christian and very kind of divine uh, emotion. But I wanted to think about this love specifically in the context of uh, Japanese Brazilian diaspora and, you know, the historical context of, uh, you know, these people's uh, movements between uh, Japan and Brazil. So... Along that line, I noticed that um, 
too many of uh, these migrants because they are of Japanese ancestry and many of them grew up in Japanese homes or Japanese families uh, back in Brazil. Uh, this language of love uh, that is so valorized in Pentecostal uh, communities also carries um, you know, a certain meaning uh, in regard to their Japanese upbringing because um, in Brazil, the stereotype is that uh, the Japanese uh, migrants are hardworking, but kind of cold. Uh, that is the stereotypical uh, narrative that Japanese migrants are very disciplined, but also can be a little robotic or kind of uh, affectively flat. Um, so to them, the fact that they converted to Pentecostalism, um, which is a very uh, emotional and uh, expressive uh uh, kind of branch of Christianity, because during worship at Pentecostal churches, uh, many congregants jump and, you know, cry and, you know, shake and dance. And some of them experience what they call slate in the spirit. So I saw this maybe several dozens times uh, over the course of my field work. But during worship, some of them start shaking and they fall onto the floor. This they call slate in the spirit. So it's a very um, vivid and um, emotional and, in their eyes, very un-Japanese uh, style of worship. Because again, the stereotype is that, you know, being Japanese or Asian in the context of Brazil is kind of being kind of flat and, you know, kind of emotionally tamed. Um, so... They feel like um, this Pentecostal conversion um, adds warmth uh, to their, uh, you know, supposedly called Japanese culture and uh, transform them even on the ethnic or cultural front. So really what I wanted to say uh, with this, you know, culture of love is that, yes, it is, a, you know, Christian or Pentecostal, um, you know, language and uh it's, uh, you know, it's really important in that sense, but also um, how this um, idea of love is configured within the, you know, diasporic and cultural uh, context of these people is equally uh, interesting and compelling. Thank you for that uh, really ex extensive kind of analysis and discussion. And parts four, contested um reminds us that Pentecostal insistence on the transcendence of their Christian fellowship from ethno-national boundaries actually does not go unchallenged. So for example, in chapter seven, entitled Of Two Bloods, you show that, uh, quote, ethical friction between the two diverging logics of kin making, the two being uh, Japanese blood and the symbolic kinship through Jesus' blood, does not easily disappear. Um, so how so? So it's really interesting that these Japanese Brazilian migrants who, you know, converted to Pentecostalism in Japan, they embody two kinds of uh, kinship. The, the first kinship is the Japanese kinship, uh, which gave them this visa. And within the logic of this, you know, Japanese ancestry or within the kinship logic of Japanese blood, it is something that you naturally have um, because of your birth. Uh, the idea of the Japanese blood, I'm not saying this is correct, but this is kind of like a you know, culturally accepted idea 
uh, or understanding of the Japanese kinship is that it is based on this quasi-biological uh, substance uh, called the Japanese blood. And it is something that you either have or do not have because it is something that you uh, inherit from your biological parents. So in that sense, uh, you know, this first logic of kinship is very uh, naturalistic. You know, either you have or don't have it. And it just uh, depends on what kind of ancestors you have uh, from the past. The second uh, kinship that they try to cultivate really hard is, of course, the spiritual kinship or spiritual fellowship mediated by uh, the Pentecostal community, specifically, you know, this um, idea of the Jesus's blood, because this rebirth in Christian community is, of course, facilitated by being reborn in the blood of the lamb or the blood of the sacrificial, um, you know, sacrificial blood of uh, Jesus Christ. So in this second um, kind of kinship, uh, what matters is not something that you biologically inherited from your parents. What matters is, you know, very real work that you do in the present to to transform yourself and also the work you do to foster fellowship with your brothers and sisters. And church is full of these kin terms, you know, the congregants call each other brother and sister. And beyond that, they also call each other auntie, a child, um, you know, grandchild. Um, they really heavily rely on these kin terms to foster this second kind of uh, kinship, which is based on uh, Christian fellowship, which in turn is cultivated by daily, uh, very, you know, um, continuous work. So in that sense, you know, this second kind of kinship um, you have more control, I would say, because it's not something um, of your biological birth. It's something of your second spiritual rebirth that you can work on in the present. It is not too late if the relationship you want is through this second spiritual kinship. Um, so in that sense, uh, this, you know, uh, Christian fellowship, Christian uh kinship and Christian belonging in this new Pentecostal community is very empowering to many of these Japanese Brazilian migrants because, um, yes, they are in Japan because of this, you know, supposed Japanese blood that they carry. But once they arrive, they realize that this Japanese blood that brought them back to Japan does not really guarantee their full belonging or full acceptance in the Japanese society today. Actually, they feel excluded. Uh, actually, they feel alienated from the mainstream Japanese culture. So they are very frustrated with this um, logic of the Japanese blood, which doesn't really give them uh, space for work. Uh, again, either you have it or don't have it. You know, it, it kind of forces a very naturalistic understanding of how relationship or relatedness um, functions. So that's why, um, you know, they find the Christian fellowship uh, very freeing and again, very empowering. But the fact remains that they are allowed to live in Japan because of their uh, kinship to the Japanese nation, which comes through the supposed Japanese blood. 
So this second spiritual kinship they cultivate is constantly under attack from the first uh, kind of kinship, which is based on a a biological understanding of the so-called Japanese blood. So that's what I I call the tension between the two kinships or two kinds of blood. And uh, that's why I, you know, called this chapter of two bloods, because uh, this kind of tug of war between the two blood is kind of never ending for these migrants. And another, um, I guess, um, focal point of tension is the category of faith and belief that you um, discuss in chapter eight, Ancestors of God. And, and this chapter raises a very intriguing point that with the flourishing of global Christianity today, the category of belief is actually gaining a renewed significance, particularly amongst uh, Brazilian Pentecostals in Japan who uh, actually spoke to you often, right, with this concept of belief and also interpreted um, their encounters with the cultural others in Japan, for example, the Japanese Buddhists, in the same analytical framework. Um, it's also something that you either have or you don't, right? So can you tell us more about this role um, of faith and belief in the context of return migrants in Japan? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, I, I think, you know, you know, this famous little uh, concise piece by uh, Donald uh, Lopez about belief. Um, and, uh, you know, um, so <laughs> that's one example of how thoroughly belief as an analytical category is challenged in the contemporary religious studies today in the, you know, in North America at least. Um, so, uh, you know, Donald Lovett says that, you know, conventionally the under kind of post-enlightenment uh, Euro-American understanding of belief is that, you know, kind of assent to a certain set of propositions already contained in the mind. Um, I don't think I'm quoting him word by word, but I think that's the gist of his argument. So, the scholars of uh, religion have really examined and really uh, questioned uh, the category of belief and how uh, useful it is as a cross-cultural um, label or category. Um, but it's interesting that you know the people on the ground, people who convert to Pentecostal Christianity, people who move across national borders and contribute to the globalization of Pentecostal Christianity from the ground, as you as you you know kind of uh, touched on when you um, asked me this question, are spreading this precise this exact understanding of belief that um, scholars of religion increasingly criticize today. So that's why I really wanted to think about you know how belief as a cultural category is mobilized by the people I studied. And I also wanted to really uh, think about uh, belief as they use it and as they understand it, because I did this research in Japan, and these um, you know Pentecostal migrants would often make critical comments about Japanese uh, practices of uh, religion by you know kind of um, highlighting uh, what to them is not right. Uh, because of their understanding of belief. So I heard many comments uh, from them about, you know, Japanese Shinto practice or Japanese Buddhist practice. And they would say that, oh, like, do they really believe it? Like, do Japanese people really believe it? And 
every time they would say something like that, I thought it was very interesting because oftentimes to Japanese people who are participating in these Shinto or Buddhist practices, belief uh, is not the first thing that they are thinking of when they are practicing these things. So that was a starting point of this chapter. And then um, I came to think of three layers to uh, you know, this belief that Pentecostal migrants uh, often spoke of. So the first layer of belief, um, you know, in my opinion, is this uh, belief as uh, uh, sincerity. So sincerely accepting a certain uh, set of propositions, sincerely, um, you know, assenting to a set of articulable states. So this is the um, first layer of belief that I often uh, heard them speak of. Whenever, um, you know, they say something like, you have to believe in what you say, you know, things like that. So that's belief as, uh, you know, a certain kind of sincerity. But then I noticed that um, maybe that does not encompass all of the different um, modes of belief as they practice it. So the second kind of belief, uh, as far as I could tell by observing their, you know, um, rituals and practices, I came to feel that um, maybe belief as they um, spoke about it also included belief as a relational commitment. And I reached this uh, conclusion by observing some of the uh, church members uh, going through water baptism and officially converting to Pentecostalism without necessarily accepting all the uh, tenets of Pentecostal Christianity as articulated by church leaders. So, uh, for example, I met one woman who converted to Pentecostalism but still kept, uh, you know, uh, uh, Buddhist altar, uh, the Okinawan ancestral worship altar at home which um, would not fly well with the rest of the community, but she, she, she still did that. And she didn't think that her conversion was inauthentic for that reason. So the second uh, you know, layer I thought was maybe um, faith could involve some kind of communal uh, or relational commitment because she converted to uh, you know, commit to uh, the rest of her family who had already converted to uh, Pentecostalism. Um, yeah, and uh, I guess the third uh, kind, right, um, is really uh, thoroughly discussed in part five of the book, Returns, uh, where you examine the triangulation of language, faith, uh, and the self. Um, so my question is, I guess, how do these three constitute each other? I'm particularly interested in the fascinating idea that you introduced uh, of the accompanied self of the Pentecostal migrants um, speaking in, quote-unquote, the pre-Babel lucidity of glossolalia or speaking in tongues. So can you please tell us more about this really fascinating couple of ideas? Yeah, so um, I felt that many of my um, interlocutors had uh, very interesting ideas about uh, language and belief because one thing they said very often was that um, prayer should be uh, prayer is something like talking to God as if God were your best friend. That's what they often say. And they say this when they um, 
are making a critical comment about, uh, for example, Buddhist sutra. Um, <laughs> once they convert to Pentecostalism and they look at some of the you know Buddhist rituals practiced in contemporary Japan, and one thing they often asked me is, "Suma, uh, you say you are Buddhist, so." Please explain why you know you ch- uh, you chant sutras, which you don't really understand, right? And you you somehow think that's gonna work, and then they would add that that's not really how things should work, Suma, because you know um, prayer or you know praying should be like a normal conversation that you have with God, as if God were your best friend. So you should at least be able to understand what you're saying. Um, and, you know, um, <laughs> their opinion is that, therefore, you know, um, Buddhism may not be as effective as, uh, you know, the religion that they uh, converted to. So hearing this comment over and over again, as someone who grew up in a, a Buddhist family in Japan was really thought-provoking. Uh, because that made me think about the relationship between uh, language and belief. Because you know, my Pentecostal friend's uh, argument was that sincere language, or you know, sincere transparent, uh, transparent language, you know, the language that you yourself can understand, then leads to sincere belief. Um, to them, you know, there was this straightforward uh, relationship. Um, so I thought, you know they were making some kind of statement about sincerity. But then I noticed that there was one mode of language that did not conform to this sincerity formula, which was speaking in tongues. Because at the church where I did field work, um, every week during worship, at least some members of the church, uh, you know, uh, spoke in tongues and prayed in tongues. Um, And the definition of speaking in tongues for them at least is that to speak in a language that you yourself cannot understand but God and angels will understand you and precisely because you human cannot understand what you are saying what's coming out of your mouth um, they uh, then claim that it must be divine because it goes beyond human comprehension and, you know, they kind of elevate uh, speaking in tongues uh, for that reason that, you know, when someone uh, gains the ability to pray in tongues, they say that, you know, um, you are having a spiritual baptism, that the Holy Spirit is visiting you in that moment if you uh, find yourself speaking or praying in tongues. So I thought it was very interesting that um, they say some things about this, you know, sincere, transparent, uh, transparent language that you use in prayer, but then immediately contradict themselves when they say that uh, speaking in tongues, speaking in a language that they cannot understand is a spiritually elevated form of prayer. So that's when I started thinking that maybe there is um, yet another, a third layer to what they call uh, faith. And I started thinking that maybe that involves this um, embodied disposition um, in yourself uh, because how they um, learn to speak in tongues is of, um, often happens in, uh, in intensely communal settings 
um, you pray with others, and it is a very vivid, uh, very uh, sensorial uh, experience. And then as you uh, spend time and immerse yourself into this, you know, context in which many are speaking in tongues very fiercely, then um, some of these church members also, uh, you know, learn to be baptized in the spirit and speaking tongues. So it is not, a, you know, referential mode of language, uh, but it is kind of a more embodied uh, dispositional mode of language that they learn when they, uh, you know, uh, get uh, get into uh, glossolalia. So that kind of, you know, um, uh, was the last part to uh, my analysis of, um, you know, faith as understood by the people I spent time with. Uh, just like, you know, the sincere language uh, that, you know, uh, my interlocutors spoke of very often, uh, they also spoke of this idea of the individual uh, quite frequently because they thought that the Japanese people in Japan uh, lack the idea of individuality uh, very often. So again, they would say something like, you know, um, you should decide as an individual to uh, convert or not. Um, and uh, in that sense, they thought that uh, you know, how many Japanese people um, identify with their Buddhist family, but not really think for uh, oneself as an individual, uh, was kind of uh, morally lacking. That was the insinuation that they often made. So then I started asking, okay, um, so just like belief, what do they exactly mean uh, when they speak about this idea of the individual as a unit of uh, conversion, as a unit of uh, belief, because they, uh, they think that it is an individual decision to uh, believe in God or not. And um, so they say the individual is the ultimate unit of uh, belief, but then, um, you know, um, especially in moments of speaking in tongues, um, you know, which they call the moments of spiritual baptism, you know, um, their experience, you know, involves this presence of the other, you know, what they call the spirit or God or sometimes even uh, Jesus Christ. So really what I wanted to say in that chapter is that this uh, rhetoric or, you know, this idea of the individual is really not as uh, individualistic as they uh, claim to be. Um, on the contrary, um, many of the uh, meaningful frameworks uh, that they use really hinge on this presence of the other, the culturally uh, sac- uh, the culturally consecrated other, such as you know God, Spirit, or Jesus Christ. So. Um, that's why I, um, you know, wrote in this book that uh, maybe the Pentecostal personhood uh, is not just, you know, this idea of the individual that the converts often speak about, but also um, it involves this idea of accompanied self, meaning that your sense of self that is accompanied by uh, this presence of the other, uh, such as God. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's a very fascinating idea. Um, and lastly, before we kind of wrap up our interview, let's talk about the title of your book, which is really a very thought-provoking title, uh, Jesus Loves Japan, which is also uh, the concluding chapter of the book before the epilogue. And this, uh, I guess, declaration or slogan, Jesus Loves Japan, is actually something that the Brazilian Pentecostal migrants declared on uh, one of the prayer walks that they went on, right? So What's the backstory of this slogan or declaration? How did you choose to make it the title of your book? Yeah. Um, so uh, this scene that you uh, you just mentioned, you know, um, when this uh, you know slogan came out of these uh, migrant converts, is that um, so at one of the largest housing complex uh, housing complexes where many Brazilian migrants live, uh, back in the nineteen nineties. Uh, there was a uh, you know small incident that involved Japanese uh, right wingers uh, who are so conservative that they believe that um, you know these foreigners, including these Japanese Brazilians living in Japan today, are a threat to the purity of their national identity. So what happened back in the 1990s uh, is that these Japanese uh, right wing groups, came to one of the uh, major housing complexes uh, with Japanese Brazilians living there um, and circled around this housing complex, um, yelling at the residents, uh, you know, through a speaker that, you know, you foreigners, um, you know, come out and face us or you foreigners, um, you know, come out and get out of our country, you know, that kind of things, very exclusionary uh, rhetoric. And in response to that, um, many of the members of the church I studied already lived in this uh, housing complex at the time. Um, And it is um, one of their favorite um, stories or testimonies that they still tell to this day that when this was going on, uh, when these Japanese right-wingers were verbally attacking them, they decided to, uh, you know, still do this prayer walk at the same housing complex and shout back to uh, these Japanese right-wing groups uh, that Jesus loved Japan. So as these um, people were shouting, you foreigners, uh, get out, uh, the Pentecostal Brazilian migrants from this church were walking um, in the same place and then shouting back to them, uh, Jesus loved Japan. Jesus loved Japan, and you know they say that they were praying for everyone, including the Japanese. So this really showed starkly um, how these Japanese Brazilian migrants uh, who converted to Pentecostalism make a conscious decision to relate to the Japanese nation or the Japanese society not through their, you know, um, not through their Japanese blood, but instead through their Christian uh, moral sensibility. Um, so that's why, you know, they didn't say, as, Jap- as Japanese descendants, we love Japan. They didn't say anything like that. Instead, they chose to proclaim that Jesus loved Japan. And therefore, we pray for these uh, Japanese right-wing groups who actually want us to be gone. So 
to me, it was very significant. This you know story that they uh, that they told from the pulpit because you know um, they were making a moral claim to belonging in Japan, not in ethnic terms, but in spiritual terms. And they felt that uh, you know the latter way of connecting with Japan through. Uh, you know, the Christian language through the spiritual fellowship was more empowering and more effective than the, you know, the ethnic um, uh, ancestry that they suppose uh, that they also have. So since, you know, this uh, phrase, Jesus loved Japan, really makes a strong statement about, you know, what they prioritize in their very complex identity, I thought this was very suitable as a book title. Thank you. Yeah, it's a very powerful book title. I mean, before reading the book, um, it kind of didn't really make sense to me immediately. But after reading the book, I was like, ah, oh, now I get it. It's the perfect title, like loving Japan through Jesus. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's one thing the press didn't ask me to correct. <laughs> they were like, this is a good title. Let's keep this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and the I have to say the cover of the book is also very like cinematic. Um, your whole book has this kind of very cinematic, vivid quality to it. So it's it's a really pleasure to read. Um, before we actually let you go, uh, we have one final question for you. And it's traditional to our New Books Network is, um, can you maybe tell us something about your current projects? Uh, sure. So my next project uh, is also about... Uh, the diversity issues in contemporary Japan, but this time I'm home. I'm hoping to uh, study Filipino migrants in Japan, not the Brazilian migrants in Japan. Uh, specifically, I want to uh, do another field work about uh, aging in Japan, given that Japan has the oldest uh, population, I mean the most aged population in the world currently. Um, so I want to look at uh, Filipino migrants in Japan and how an increasing number of them are today participating in the elder care industry in Japan. And the last um, bit about this next project of mine is that I also want to compare the uh, migrant caregivers uh, with the technological um, equipment that uh, many Japanese uh, robotic companies are uh, inventing or promoting right now to um, respond to the increasing uh, caregiving need in Japan. So it's going to be, again, about... Uh, kinship and national identity uh, and, uh, you know, diversity in Japan through the lens of migrant caregivers and uh, care technology um, and how those two things relate to uh, aging and uh, care. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I'm really looking forward to your new project. I'm sure it's going to be really great. And I hope the the pandemic won't um, interfere with your fieldwork too much. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm currently waiting for, uh, you know, good timing to uh, carry out a fieldwork because right now it's not uh, feasible. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it will get better soon for all of us. 
Well, thank you so much for uh, taking your time to talk to us today. And I really enjoyed uh, your wonderful book. It's really beautifully written. So I highly recommend to anybody who's interested, um, not just in um, diaspora communities in Japan, but also um, religion in general. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.